Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for all the things that you are, and especially for the things that we've sung about this morning. Uh, We thank you for Christ, and that in Christ alone we have everything that we need. Uh, We thank you that we don't have to depend on ourselves because we constantly fail, and we could never reconcile ourselves to you um, by ourselves. But we thank you for Jesus Christ, and we thank you for everything that we have in him. We come to you this morning knowing that you are an omnipotent God and an all-knowing God, so you know our needs and you're able to provide for whatever we need. And so we come to you this morning praying and asking that you would take care of those needs. Uh, For many of us here today, we have needs that perhaps others know about and perhaps others that do not know about them, but you know those needs, and so we pray specifically for those. And for those who have things that are on their hearts this morning and things they're concerned about, things they're worried about, or things they face this week, I pray that you'd especially be with them, that you would give them comfort and you would give them encouragement um, as we listen to your word this morning. We also want to pray for uh, some of those ministries and those that you've raised up in this area. We pray especially for covenant care services as they do the work of uh, placings for adoptions. We pray that you continue to bless that ministry and we thank you for your work in them in the past. We also pray for our government as we think about that this morning, for uh, national government, local government. We pray for the president who has all kinds of decisions to make, especially with so many things going on in different parts of the world in this country as well. Uh, We pray for the salvation of our leaders. We know that many of them just need to give their lives to you, that they need to trust you as their Lord and Savior, and we pray that you would work that in their hearts, and we pray for them. We also would pray this morning for our denomination. We pray for uh, the PCA as as it continues to grow and stand firm for your truth and the things that uh, are affirmed in Scripture. We pray that we continue to be strong, that you would be with those pastors who are preaching this morning. Um, In our sister churches, we pray you'd especially be with them and give them power in their preaching. We pray that you would transform lives and even that you would uh, bring about renewal and revival among your church here. We pray for the, I pray for the church here at Lake Oconee and pray that you would bless all the ministries that are here, um, all of those who are involved in ministries. We pray that you would uh, bless all of them as they work and serve this week um, in all the different uh, avenues that they are involved in. We pray you'd especially be with them uh, this week. I pray as well for um, Dr. Bill Barton and pray for his continued recovery. We pray that you would be with he and his family, uh, that you would bring him back to health, and that you would um, continue to give him comfort and encouragement as well. And then we pray too for all of those who have uh, sicknesses or illnesses or things that they're facing uh, with regard to their health. We pray that you would be with the doctors. Uh, with others that you have gifted to work in that way, but we pray that you would bring about healing in cases um, where so many need healing as well. And then we pray for those who are in the military right now. Uh, The world is an uncertain place, and so many of those who are involved in our military are being sent to different places, uh, some of those unknown and some of those uh, where they won't know if they will even come back. We pray that you would be with them. We pray you'd be working in the hearts of any here today and give them comfort if they have children or family members in the military, but we pray you especially give them your protection. And then, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you'd give us direction. We pray that your spirit would open our eyes so we would see the things that you would have us to see. Some of these things may be things that we've read or we've heard very often, uh, things we've heard preached before, but I pray that you would strengthen us, that you would remind us of the things we need to be reminded of, that you would cause us to be strong in those things uh, that we need to remain strong in. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to be reading verses 13 to 22 this morning. Colossians 1, 13 to 22. We're kind of coming in the middle of a section here, um, which Paul has introduced a letter to the Colossians, but we'll begin as he begins to speak about Jesus Christ in, in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might have preeminence. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. At the end of last year, I believe it was December 10th, 2013, uh, there was an article that was in Time magazine. Uh, they did a piece on a book that was entitled, Who's Bigger? Where Historical Figures Really Rank. And I don't know if any of you had a chance to look at that article or if you've uh, seen the book or maybe seen something about it on the Internet. Um, but basically, these two guys, uh, Stephen Skinner and Charles B. Ward, uh, looked through all kinds of internet data and all kinds of other things from Google to Wikipedia, and they compiled what they believed were uh, the rankings for who is the most important person or people who have ever lived in history. Now, they had thousands and thousands. I think it went to something like um, maybe 2,200 different names that they had ranked and their significance uh, throughout the history of the world. Now, among the top ten were people we might expect, Aristotle, perhaps Alexander the Great, Muhammad, Shakespeare, uh, President Lincoln, uh, Napoleon, and even Adolf Hitler, who was in the top ten. Uh, but the top person um, of the whole list was Jesus. That was the person that they ranked highest as the most influential person who's ever lived in the history of the world. Now, in that, they got it right, uh, because Jesus is the most influential per person in the history of the world, and I think um, all of us would recognize that. However, uh, when they referred to him, they were simply referred to him as a prophet. In that, they got it completely wrong, or at least uh, they didn't have the full truth. They clearly missed something. And yet, I think there are all kinds of people today that would say that Jesus is the most prominent person in the history of the world. Uh, we know that uh, the, even the calendar, although some are seeking to change that today, even the calendar is based on uh, the life and the death of Christ, B.C. and A.D., um, but many people would say that Jesus Christ was certainly significant, um, but they may be confused, and many are confused, about why Jesus Christ is so, so significant. Now, 
in the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, which we're looking at this morning, um, Paul wants to make sure and goes to great pains to make sure that the church, people who are Christians, understand exactly who Christ was, the identity of Christ, so that there's no confusion about that. And that's the text that we look at this morning. This text really teaches us about the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of Christ in all things. And it tells us why Jesus is supreme over all people who have ever lived in the course of human history. And so as we look at the text this morning, we're going to be looking at the supremacy of Jesus Christ. We sang about that this morning, and we'll look at that in Scripture as well. Now, there is no way that we can exhaustively cover all of the text, just the verses we read uh, this morning. There is so much that's there, we couldn't possibly uh, cover all of that. But I want us to look at a number of truths um, and just go over those briefly, looking at the things that are the, the basic things that Paul teaches about Jesus Christ and why he is so important and so significant. The first thing uh, that Paul teaches us in this text is that Jesus is the man who is also God. Jesus is the man who is also God. I want to pick up at verse 15. <clears throat> it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So he's saying, Jesus is the, the image of the invisible God. And in saying that, he's saying Jesus Christ is the man who is God. Now, if we look at the second part of the verse first, um, he says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Now, what does he mean by that? Firstborn of all creation. Well, he wants us first of all to understand that Jesus Christ was born as a man. He was genuinely um, a man, a human being. Uh, there were people in the time not long after this, and in fact, Paul addresses some of this toward the end of the letter. There were some people called Gnostics. Uh, they didn't believe that Jesus was really a man. They believed that he was God, uh, but he had the appearance of a man, but he didn't really have a human body. He really wasn't human. But Paul wants us to know that he was born, that he was born as a man. Uh, all of Scripture um, points to that, especially if you look at the Gospel of Luke. Luke goes to great pains in Luke chapter 2 to point out that Jesus was born just like all of us are. Now, obviously, there were some things that were different, uh, being born of a virgin, but he was born as a man. So Jesus Christ was a real man. He also wants us to understand when he says firstborn uh, that something about the prominence of Jesus Christ, the place that he had. Now, in the ancient world, Somebody who was the firstborn was the person who had the highest place of prominence in the family. And that is still true in some cultures and perhaps even in uh, families in America today. That was the place of prominence. So if you were the firstborn, you had uh, basically sort of the authority in the family. Now certainly that would be true with the king. Uh, the king's firstborn son would normally become the king after him. He would be the person at authority. Um, but also, uh, the, any person who was the firstborn in the family would be the person who represented the family. They were the one who had the highest prominence or the highest place of standing. And so Jesus, he's saying, is the firstborn. He is, of all men born, he is the one who has the highest prominence, the highest standing. And many see Jesus in this way. Uh, they would see him as the most important person who ever lived. However, there are many people who even might say that even though he had the highest place or the highest standing, uh, he, he wasn't God. If you go back to the, the first or the fourth century, there was a man by the name of Arius in church history um, who claimed that although uh, he believed that uh, Jesus was the founder of our faith and that Jesus was sent by God, certainly he argued that he was a creation of God, that he wasn't God himself. 
uh, he was known for saying there was a time when the Son was not. In other words, there was a time when Christ the Son did not exist. In a certain point, he came into existence. But Paul wants to make sure uh, that's not what we understand, or that's not exclusively what we think. And of course, there are other groups today that would say the same thing. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and even uh, Muslims would say that Jesus was somebody sent from God, but he wasn't God. But Paul doesn't just leave us with that. He doesn't just tell us that he's the firstborn of all creation. He says that he is the image, (coughs) excuse me, that he is the image of the invisible God. He's the image of the invisible God. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, Jesus taught us in John chapter 4 that God is a spirit. And of course, we see that in the Old Testament. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you go back to Exodus chapter 33, um, God told Moses that no one could look at him and live. So no one um, could see God. God is the spirit. No one can see him. And you couldn't even see the full, full glory of God or you wouldn't be able to live. And yet... Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul said. He is the image of the invisible God. A God is spirit. He is unseen. And yet Jesus Christ, the Father is spirit. Jesus Christ becoming man is the image of the invisible God. He's fully God, though revealed to us as man so that we can. And there were people who literally saw and spoke with God when Jesus Christ was here on earth. And so Paul says, yes, he's the firstborn of all creation, but yet he's also the image of the invisible God. Now Paul reiterates this in verse 19 when he says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, um, so that he was fully God and he was fully man. Uh, The Council of Nicaea in 325, one of the first major ecumenical councils of all the different church leaders from around the world in the 4th century, uh, when they came together, they, they said that Jesus Christ was of one substance with the Father. You'll notice that that's part of the Westminster Confession that we read this morning as well, of the same substance as the Father. In other words, he is as much God as God the Father is God, and that's the whole mystery of the Trinity. Uh, he is not half man and half God, but he is fully man and fully God, Uh, without mixture, without distortion. And so Jesus Christ is the man who is also God. And that's the first thing that Paul um, emphasizes. The second thing that Paul emphasizes in this text is that Jesus is the creator of all things. Notice what he said in verse 16. He said, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, and for him. Now, we don't often think of Jesus as the creator of the world. We may think of God the Father as the one who created the world, but Paul tells us that Jesus Christ was the creator of the world. Along with God the Father, he created all things, and all things were created for him. Uh, If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, you don't have to turn there this morning, but we're familiar with the passage. When man was being created, what does the Bible say? God said, let us make man in our own image. And the Hebrew there, the Hebrew pronoun there is literally plural. God is saying, let us. And so that, it, that alludes to the fact that it wasn't just God the Father at the beginning of the world creating everything. It was also Jesus Christ the Son who was creating as well. And so Jesus Christ is the creator. 
And that's precisely why Jesus had control over all creation when he was here. You think about the miracles that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus did while he was here. Uh, some of those things amazing. Jesus could be in a, in a boat when there's a, a raging storm all around him and speak a word and it stops. It completely ceased. The whole thing is over. Um, he literally created bread for over 5,000 people at one time and over 4,000 people at another time. And in fact, he spoke sometimes to people uh, who were far away who were immediately healed of diseases that they had. Uh, people's um, spinal cords or, were instantly recreated, and so there were people who were paralyzed, could get up and walk, um, all because Jesus was the creator, and he was on earth. He had power over creation, and he demonstrated that. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why the people that he came to should have known that he was God, that he was who he claimed to be, because he had the power of creation. He held the power over creation because he was the creator. Jesus was the creator who became part of his creation and revealed himself to us. Now, that's why we can confidently pray. Um, because we pray to Jesus Christ as the creator, the one who could speak things into existence, and he can do the same thing today. And so we can confidently pray. So whether it's, it's a need for healing that we have or some other need that we have, we can confidently go to Jesus Christ and we can pray because he can do what we can't do. Now, that doesn't mean that he answers every prayer. Uh, because Jesus is also God, he knows what's best. He knows the things that we, we absolutely need and the things that are best for us. And so he doesn't answer every prayer knowing that some of those things are not best for us. But all of us can still have faith in Jesus. One of the, uh, one of the, the prayers that I like probably the most, and not actually a prayer, but a statement was made in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 3 when the three Hebrews faced the fiery furnace and they came before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar said, you've got to bow down to this image or else you're going to be thrown into this furnace. Um, I love the reaction that they had. They said, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he chooses not to, we're, we're still going to do the right thing and we're just going to leave it in his hands. And that's the way we have to pray as well. Knowing we pray to an almighty sovereign creator um, who cares about us and who is one of us, who walked on this earth just like we do, knowing uh, that God knows what's best, that he is God, knows what is best for us, and he will do what's best for us. And so we can trust him as our creator. Now, that logically leads us to the next truth that we see, because it's in partly in that same verse. And that is that Jesus is the sovereign over the world. That Jesus is the sovereign over the world. Uh, we just read in verse 16 that he created thrones or dominions or rulers and authorities. All things were created through him and for him. That's telling us that Jesus is actually over or sovereign all over empires and kings and nations. And so he created those things and he is over those things. Um, Christ created those in authority, those who would, would rule em empires, and so by implication he is sovereign over them. He is in control of all of that. Now, uh, evil in our world today seems to rage everywhere. And it, and it seems to sometimes get worse and worse. I see all the things about ISIS that are going on right now and everything with that in the Middle East and then Russia and Ukraine uh, and then everything that's even going on in our country and persecution of Christians around the world. And we may, it may look as though things are uh, kind of out of control and when is all this going to stop? But Jesus Christ is sovereign over all of those things. He's sovereign over all those things. None of those things get out of his control. 
Now, I don't know about you, but at times, I get kind of frustrated with the government in America. Um, I, I, I look at some of the things that are going on. I, I look at 1.5 million innocent babies killed every year with the approval and the sanction of our government. Um, I think about uh, the fact that we're spending money like it's as common as sand. Um, I think about uh, marriage and God's institution of marriage being uh, completely attacked um, as though it was something that human beings could just take and rework um, at their own wills instead of God's will. And those things frustrate me. And I think, you know, those things, certainly that's not how God wants things to be. We pray this morning. Um, that God's will would be done as earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And we look at some of those things, and it certainly doesn't seem like those are the things uh, that, that should be going the way that they're going. Um, and yet, I have to remind myself when I get frustrated about those things that Jesus Christ is the creator, that he's sovereign over all of the world, that he's working all things for his glory and for the good of his people, and that one day, uh, no matter what the circumstances are right now, God is in control of that, and he, he will one day return and those things will be set right. Uh, it's difficult, perhaps, for us to be patient in the meantime. Uh, while God is, 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 knows what he's doing and is working through all of these things uh, and bringing more people to himself and more people to Christ, but we can trust him because he is sovereign over all things. Not only that, he's sovereign in that he holds all things together, um, Paul says here. Um, scientists tell us that life came about uh, just because everything just happened to converge at just the right time so that on planet Earth, you know, it's just the right distance from the sun, not too close, not too far away, just right so that, that life just happened to come into existence, everything just happened to work out um, as it should, and so we have life here. Uh, and then they're also telling us that this planet is winding down, and so that eventually things are getting worse and worse, and then and there will be some cosmic thing, and then we'll, there will no longer be life anymore. Uh, and that could be, I suppose, a daunting prospect for any of us in thinking about that, except for the fact that Paul says Christ is literally holding everything together. He's making sure that everything stays in orbit, that gravity functions, that life is sustained. All of those things are in God's control, in Jesus Christ's hands, um, and those things will continue um, to work and function as he intends them to until it's time for the new heaven and the new earth, for the new creation. And so we can rely on that because Jesus Christ is sovereign over everything. The fourth truth that we see in this passage is in the first part of verse 18, and that is that Jesus is the sole head of the church. It says in verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. In the 17th century, there were a group of Presbyterians in Scotland who were known as the Covenanters. Um, and these people who were heavily persecuted in Scotland. In uh, 1534, Parliament, under King Henry VIII, had passed uh, the uh, Act of Sovereignty in which uh, the King of England was specifically made the head of the church. Well, the Covenanters refused to say that, that he was the head of the church. They said the King of England is not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And so many of them were persecuted because of that, because they refuse to say that the King of England is the head of the church. And you can read stories if you look up the Covenanters. Uh, there's some very uh, moving stories, there's some very sad stories about these people and how they were persecuted because they would not say Jesus that the King was head of the church, but that Jesus Christ was. Um, and so uh, there were pastors that were jailed and put in prison, 
hundreds of pastors in Scotland that were put in prison because they refused to say that Jesus, that the king was the head of the church, but that Jesus was. Now, they would not affirm anything else. And they were right. Paul tells us that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the sole head of the church. And that's why, as Presbyterians, uh, we have no, we have no uh, bishop or pope um, who speaks infallibly for Jesus Christ um, as the head of the church here on earth. Now, we have elders that rule in the church, but those people are people who are under Jesus Christ. We might call them as under-shepherds. Uh, they don't have an in- inherent infallibility in themselves, um, but they have authority as they preach and speak the word of God. But Jesus Christ ultimately is the head of the church. This is his church. And so Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the head of the church. The next thing that Paul tells us is that Jesus is the conqueror of death. In verse 18, he says, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Now, Jesus, Paul says of Jesus that he is the firstborn from the dead. And what he's speaking of here is Jesus Christ's resurrection. Um, he died, but he was raised again. We sang about that this morning. Uh, we uh, said that in the Apostles' Creed as well, that Jesus Christ died, and yet he rose again. He's the firstborn from the dead. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, emphasize the fact that Jesus really died and that he really rose again three days later from the dead. And in fact, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 24, G- uh, Peter, in preaching a sermon, uh, to over 5,000 people said God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He said it was not possible for Jesus Christ to be held by death and he literally conquered death. He overcame death. Now Paul uses this term firstborn again. He's already used that once earlier in the passage. He uses this again and he says that he is the firstborn from the dead in reference to Jesus' resurrection. So what does he mean by that? Well, I think the first thing that he means is that Jesus Christ was the first to be raised permanently. There were other people that had been raised from the dead. If you go back to the Old Testament, um, Elijah raised a widow's son from the dead, and even Jesus, while he was here, raised a number of different people from the dead, including, including Lazarus in John chapter 11. But Jesus is the person who is permanently raised from the dead. In other words, he is the one who finally defeated death. All these other people were raised from the dead. They still died again. But Jesus Christ permanently was raised from the dead um, because he literally conquered death. He overcame death. And in his resurrection, he defeated sin and the penalty of sin, which is death. And so he literally overcame death. And so Paul means by firstborn, that Jesus was the first to be permanently raised, but he also means that Jesus is the first of many that will be raised. And that's one of the, what, one of the things he means by firstborn. In other words, Jesus Christ isn't the only one to be raised. He's the first, but there are many who will follow after him. Just like in the Old Testament, they used to talk about the first fruits. Uh, they would grow crops, and the first fruits were the ones, uh, the first things that they harvested, they reaped. But that was a, a, an indication that there was going to be more to come. And the same thing is true for us. Jesus Christ was the first one permanently raised, but all of us who are believers in Jesus Christ will one day be permanently raised from the dead as well. And that's what gives us certainty. That's what gives us hope uh, when we think about that. Um, People were killed by Roman emperors because they refused to say that Caesar is Lord, instead saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, 
why could they do that? They could do so because Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead. Um, there were missionaries back in the 1950s to the Aka Indians, Nate Saint, Jim Elliott, and they literally died giving the gospel to a tribe of people who were called killers. Um, and why, how could they do that? How could they give up their lives to give other people the gospel? Because they knew that Jesus Christ was the firstborn from the dead and that they would be raised one day too. There were people this past week in other countries that were beheaded because of their faith in Jesus Christ. How can they do that? Because they realize that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and that one day they'll be raised again from the dead as well. All of his followers will be raised to live with him. And we are the next ones who will be raised to live with Jesus Christ forever. And that takes us to the final truth. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Jesus is the only Savior of the world. Notice what Paul says, and really closes this out, sort of culminating this section. Um, He says, and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Again, there are two parts to this. First of all, Paul says all of us are alienated from God because of our sin. In some translations it says enemies, and Paul talks about this in Ephesians as well. We're literally enemies of God. All of us, all of us. Um, have rebelled against God. We know what God has said to do. Uh, We know what's right. Uh, We know that lying and stealing and hating and being unkind and murdering and all kinds of other things, we know that those things are wrong, and yet to please ourselves, all of us have rebelled against God. And as a result of that, Paul says, because of our evil deeds, we have been alienated from God. In other words, we become enemies of God. We're separated from God. Man was created to walk with God. Adam and Eve were in the garden, but because of sin, they were alienated from God, and all of us are alienated from God. Because of our rebellion, uh, God has, has made known what we're to do, and we deliberately rebel against that. We rebel against what God wants us to do. And so we're alienated from God. Isaiah says in Isaiah 59 too, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear. That's an apt description of all people born into this world. Our sins have separated us from God. And yet, Paul goes on to say, Jesus' death has reconciled us to God. It's reconciled us. In other words, it's taken uh, two people who were enemies, and in Jesus Christ's death, he reconciles us to God the Father so that we're no longer alienated from God. We're no longer separated from God. We no longer have to experience the guilt of being under condemnation. Ultimately, those who are separated from God will be separated from God forever if nothing's done about that. And Jesus talks about that, talking about that place being hell, where we're eternally separated from God. Uh, But because of our sin, we're separated, and yet because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to remain separated. We can be reconciled to God. We can be, as Jesus said, friends, his friends, as he said of his disciples, so that we're no longer enemies. We're now reconciled. And because of that, Um, everything changes, and our lives can be in harmony with God, and we can be pleasing to God, God, not because of anything we do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. Paul goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, who is the we he's talking about there? Because it's not everyone. 
We aren't universalists. We don't believe that because Jesus Christ died, everybody is saved. Who is Paul talking about? Well, if you go back to verse 4 and the beginning of chapter 1, it's those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the ones who are reconciled to God. And so uh, Paul says all of our sins can be forgiven and forgotten. The Old Testament says our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west from us. Um, he says all those things can be forgiven and we're transferred in the kingdom of his son into the kingdom of God. So uh, we were enemies of God and now we can become part of the kingdom of God and we can live with him for eternity. When we were up in Michigan, there was a young man that was in our church there who was really a rebel against God, a rebel against just about everything. We first went to the, went to the church there. Um, I met him. You could see right away that he was just a rebel. He didn't care about his parents. Um, he didn't care about the church. He didn't care about anybody, really, except for himself. And he rebelled about, against just about everything. Um, and at one point, he called me or called me one day and said that he wanted to talk with me and about a few things. And so we worked out a time. And he said, well, I'll come over on Tuesday and I'll talk with you. Um, but we came to church that Sunday before the Tuesday, and he couldn't wait any longer. He wanted to come and talk with me um, in one of the rooms at the front of the church. And when he did, he, began to, he just began to weep. He broke down and began crying because the Holy Spirit had started working in him and uh, convinced him of his sin and his rebellion. And he was... Uh, one of the most transformed people I have ever seen. I continued to meet with him, and God just radically transformed his life, uh, saved his girlfriend. Um, the, both of them were radically transformed, and now they have a wonderful family and are still serving God. Now, that was a person who was a rebel against God, and yet he was reconciled to God. doesn't seem like a person I would thought is going to be somebody reconciled to God, but he was, uh, because that's what Jesus Christ does and the power of Jesus Christ. Now, I have a similar story, and if you're a Christian, all of you have similar stories to that as well, um, though the details may be different. At one point, you were an enemy of God. You were alienated from God, but because of putting your faith in Jesus Christ and what Christ did on the cross, now you've become reconciled to God. We can actually say that we are friends of God, that we are children of God, no longer alienated. And the rest of us who are, um, who are Christians, um, can say, this is the reason we worship God today. When we come to, to this worship service, we can worship God um, because Jesus Christ has reconciled us to God. Um, and that's a wonderful privilege that we have. Uh, if there are those here this morning, if you would say, you're sitting here this morning, you say, you know, I recognize I'm alienated from God. I know I've rebelled against God. Well, you can be reconciled to God today through Jesus Christ because he is the only Savior of the world, the only one who can reconcile us to God. And if you do that this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled to God as well. We sang a few moments ago uh, one of my favorite songs, In Christ Alone, and I love the last verse because he says, uh, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. And nothing can separate us from God. Nothing can separate us from God. We were once separated. We can never be separated again if we're in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul wants us to know who Jesus Christ is. He wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is supreme over all. Um, are you a rebel this morning? Um, are you somebody uh, who says Jesus Christ is supreme and Jesus Christ is supreme in my heart and my life? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your supremacy. We thank you uh, that you stooped to become man, 
uh, so that even though you are the all-powerful God, you came and revealed yourself to us in Jesus Christ here on earth. We thank you for everything that we have in Jesus Christ, and we can think about all the good things that you do for us, but not the least of which is the fact that you provided reconciliation, that even though we were separated from you because of our sin, and even though we deserved that, um, you made a way for us to be reconciled to you through Jesus Christ. We thank you for that this morning. I pray that if there are any this morning who haven't been reconciled to you, that they would be, um, that you would work in their hearts, uh, that they would be reconciled this morning. And I pray for the rest of us that we would worship you with joy the rest of this day and the rest of this week because we know that we've been reconciled to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.